it will either be corrected or we are going to face a horrible, horrible day. This is not CNN. Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. This is where Paul talks about the big stories of the week that appeared on thisiscommonsense.org. This episode is for the second week of July 2020. This podcast can be found at SoundCloud, Apple, Google, and Stitcher. This year has been, uh, you know, it seems like we had the coronavirus uh, uh, crisis, and uh, and it's still with us, but doesn't get quite as much play because now we have the criminal justice reform, Black Lives Matter, racism uh, uh, issue, and all of those are issues, uh, but how those are issues and how we ought to deal with those issues. Uh, There's a lot of difference of opinion. And of course, on Monday, we looked at just one little aspect of this, which is, and the the script was entitled, Protest Hits the Pavement. And it was about the fact that, and they're doing this now in in New York outside of uh, Trump Tower on the street. But in Washington, the city government uh, allowed Black Lives Matter to paint Black Lives Matter in very big letters on 16th Street, which is one of the major streets going into Lafayette Park and the White House and so on. And of course, I don't have anything against Black Lives Matter as a slogan because Black Lives do matter. I don't even really have anything against the idea that you have to say Black Lives Matter and you can't say all lives matter because Blacks have had certain disadvantages. Because I think you could look at it and you could say in some collective way that collectively, you know, there's a lot of there are millions of people that all go together to make these uh, collective arguments. But that you could say in a, in a collective way, boy, there's been a lot of discrimination from slavery to Jim Crow uh, and, and criminal justice has been a terrible situation. Of course, it's been terrible for everybody, not just black folks and and uh but but i don't have a problem with saying yes uh black people have been discriminated against not every single one not all the same other people have been discriminated against too all those things are true but it but i think what bothers me is the idea that you couldn't say all lives matter because of course they all they do it's just it's truth and you're always allowed to say the truth but it's also that somehow there's some special thing that happens when you say, when you recognize that people whose skin is black have been discriminated against. And I don't think there's some magic that happens there. I think all kinds of people have faced challenges and some of those challenges may be legally uh, you may be able to do something about it. If someone stole something from you, you may be able to go to court and get it back. We just had a court case this year, uh, this year, this week, uh, which is also in this year. Uh, we had a court case in which the Supreme Court ruled five to four that tr- Indian tribes still own the territory in much of Oklahoma because by law, the state of Oklahoma and the, and the Congress that, that ended the, the treaty didn't really end the treaty. They, 
created a state, but they never abrogated that treaty. And so they didn't in any official way reclaim that land. Uh, that's not the subject that, that we're dealing with, so I don't want to go into all the weeds there. But the point of that is this. If your family was enslaved or after slavery, during Reconstruction or during uh, some other period uh, since that time, has had property stolen, has been um, harmed in one way or another that you can prove and that you can show the person who harmed me or the company or the group is X and X has this many resources uh, and those resources came from what I had that what my family had that was taken. Well, you could go to court right now. And so that's a beautiful thing to be able to rectify mistakes that are 100 years old or older if you have the evidence and can prove in a court of law uh, that you were harmed and you can identify who harmed you and so on. Now, obviously, most of the people who, all the people who held slaves are dead. All the people who were slaves are dead. But that doesn't mean that their family couldn't still do certain things. And the reason I, I point that up is the idea is, to not, is not to say, oh, that was in the past. That discrimination is in the past. Tough luck, it's over. It is to say that if you have a case, make your case. And it is also to say, but don't make a general case that you were aggrieved, therefore, somebody who had nothing to do with it, who just happens to be a taxpayer in the United States of America, whose family uh, had nothing to do with slavery, even though obviously what our ancestors did, we aren't responsible for, but people who have no connection whatsoever to it. And the question is, should they have to pay because a black person was discriminated against. Well, no, the, only the guilty have to have to make amends. Someone who's innocent doesn't have to pay money because someone of the same skin color did something. That doesn't make a lot of sense. And so in, in addressing these, I think it's very easy to retreat to different sides. I think we have to be all ears when people are saying, look, I've been harmed, and and if we can rectify that harm in a just manner, we have to do it. At the same time, it's not a automatic. Hey, I was aggrieved, so I get to pick and choose what you know what you owe me, and I can you know we're going to have reparations and other things. That it seems to me is a recipe for just spreading around the harm and not getting justice, but somehow getting some sort of justice based on race that, oh, this person was hurt of this skin color, therefore we'll hurt this person over here, and then we'll, you know, somehow we'll equalize the whole world. That's not going to happen because it's, people aren't capable of making it happen, no matter how crazy uh, the government becomes and tries to make it happen. That's not going to be the result. I say all that to set up what is one little aspect of this greater issue. And that's the fact that 
the officials in in uh, uh, Washington D.C. Uh, allowed Black Lives Matter to paint the, their slogan on the street. Now, the way our system works, funny, I have to remind people of this, especially people who are supposedly running our system, but the way our system works is that you have absolute free speech, but you don't have a right to grab control of the government, not the buildings or the the uh, streets uh, or the parks or what have you and write your messages there unless the government is making the streets or the buildings or whatever a public forum. If the government allows Black Lives Matter to write Black Lives Matter on 16th Street in Washington, D.C., then they have to allow other people who have a different message that might be the opposite of Black Lives Matter to also write their messages. That's called freedom of speech. We all get the speech to speak. If the government is controlling the microphone or the canvas, and in this case, uh, the, the canvas is the street, government does control it, and they can't allow one side to speak and not have the other side speak. A lot of places in the world just had an election in, in Russia, a referendum. Well, Putin's side of the referendum has all the public uh, uh, media outlets, has all kinds of ability to speak. The other side has no ability to speak. Those aren't fair elections. That's not a free society. That's not the robust debate of ideas. That's the government putting their thumb on the scale. So Judicial Watch, uh, which is an organization, <coughs> excuse me, an organization that I very much like and respect. I don't always agree with everything they do, but they went after uh, George W. Bush. Uh, they've gone after Obama. They've gone after Trump. They've gone after any sort of government activity that is not following the rules of freedom of speech. They've been a, a, a good uh, watchdog in terms of uh, government accountability. And they certainly, they certainly lean right conservative uh, Republican, Tom Fitton, who's the, the head of it, uh, certainly a conservative Republican. But they have not been afraid to attack Republican administration uh, or Republican officials. And so I have a, a certain amount of respect for them for that. But they filed with the city uh, district of Columbia, Washington, D.C. Uh, they filed with the government and said, we would like to put our message on the street. And their message is one that I think is even less controversial. Their message is that no one is above the law, which is a great message, I think. Uh, we could all agree, maybe not all. But they didn't get any real response. So now they have gone to court to force a response. And the reason I think this is so important is because, as we've said so many times, Tim, freedom of speech is the gift that America has given the world by having our First Amendment that so strongly protects those rights. And yet we live in a, in a time in which People are worried that you can't say things that might hurt somebody's feelings. There seems to be all kinds of efforts to control what people can say. Free speech is too dangerous today. 
It will hurt people's feelings. It might lead people to think things that we don't think they ought to think. And, and so this is actually a much more important case because left to their own devices, especially in, in cities, which are almost all controlled by Democrats, they're going to carry the democratic line. And we could see ourselves if we didn't have rules that require the government to treat people fairly. You would see all kinds of propaganda in any city you went to just about that was all loaded up on the democratic side, on the more liberal side. And then you might go to the countryside. Maybe the, maybe the uh, you know, some rural county would have billboards that were all on the conservative side. That's not what we want. We want a government that is a fair referee. And we, as the players, as the actors, as the sovereigns in this society, we decide. Government facilitates us making that decision. And the moment that government jumps on one side and starts painting streets with one slogan and not the other, we no longer have the sort of free speech and free government that we ought to have because the government has chosen side. So this, uh, this commentary um, seemed to me to just be so clear. I don't mean that it was written clearly, but it's just such an obvious thing that the government can't campaign on one side of an issue and allow that side of the issue to paint their signs all over the street and buildings and so on at public expense. And then, but the other side doesn't get to speak. So um, I certainly, uh, I certainly, uh, uh, you know, I expected there'd be some people who might take offense because everybody takes offense to, to, you know, not everybody, but some people take offense to anything. But here I thought what was interesting is we did get some pushback. Uh, Tom Knapp, who's a, a friend, um, we don't always agree, but he came in and argued that uh, Judicial Watch, uh, in the comments at the website, this is commonsense.org, that Judicial Watch does think that some people are above the law. And he said, quote, specifically, the bureaucrats and thugs who persecute immigrants in violation of the U.S. Constitution's near absolute prohibition on federal regulation of immigration. And uh, now I didn't I, I was very busy, I guess, on Monday because I, I didn't get to this until others. This whole conversation had, had taken place. But Pat, who is also a very uh, regular commenter. Uh, came back and said, wait a second, wait a second. Article 1, Section 9, Clause 1 of the Constitution says, the migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808, but a duty, uh, uh, but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation not exceeding $10 for each person. That's the constitutional provision. And basically what Tom Knapp is arguing is that Congress didn't have the power to regulate Im immigration because of that statement in the constitution. And that the fact that it, that that power or that prohibition went away in 1808 doesn't somehow give them the power 
And under the Tenth Amendment, the states retain that power and, and haven't given it to the federal government. I disagree. And Pat disagrees and points out that, uh, you know, basically, any time you specifically say Congress cannot assert this power before 1808 or any date certain, the clear implication is that this is a power they have, but it's being prescribed for this time period. And the moment that time period ends, Congress has the power. So it's not really uh, uh, something you look at under the 10th Amendment, because it's not something that's been reserved for the states or the people, and that was not given to Congress. It is something that the Constitution very implicitly says is Congress's power, just not to be used prior to 1808. So, um, you know, the Constitution is not a long document, um, but it is chock full of uh, very interesting things, and it is well worth just my two cents. I, I have read it many times, and almost any time a question comes up that, that you know, causes me to think, okay, what's the Constitution say? I go back and read it, and it's, it, it's not a hard read. But it's amazing how many times what is being discussed and the way people are talking about it, if you go back and read the Constitution, it becomes much more clear and unfortunately not as relatable to the public debate. So uh, here, I think, is, a, is another case where you can assert that the states had this power and therefore the federal government doesn't have it, but the clear language in that uh, article, uh, what is it, Article 1, Section 9, is, uh, is such that I don't think, I, well, and, the, and the, no, no state has sued, no courts have, uh, have decided the opposite. I think clearly um, it is constitutionally a power the federal government has. Now, if we had better representation, um, we might feel like we could influence that power a little bit better, and maybe that's the, the path we ought to go. But I think the federal government does have that power, at least constitutionally. Mr. Knapp's argument was an interesting one, I have to admit. I'm really prone to accepting or considering uh, arguments like his, uh, strict constructionist arguments with based on the 10th Amendment. In this case, your argument rests on an implication. Now, implied power is, is a doctrine of the Constitution I don't agree with. Your implication that you're seeing here is much more clear than the one that was conjured up early in constitutional history by Alexander Hamilton and others, uh, and Justice Marshall. Right, because I, I would agree. I mean, sometimes when people say, oh, this is an implied power, you know, you're kind of, you're looking at the ceiling, wait a second, how is that really implied? Here, I think anybody reading the language sees that implication, um, that if, if you're saying you can't use this power until this date's certain, that it's pretty hard to say, well, you never had that power. Well, why, why would they put a date certain that, that uh, you could use it after that? Or why would they say you couldn't use it until that date if after that date you still couldn't use it? It just wouldn't make any sense. So I do think that this is a... Uh, uh, it is not a implied power in the sense of some of the uh, loosey-goosey uh, idea of the living constitution that, well, the framers must have intended for us to be able to do X, Y, and Z. It's not that sort of implied power. 
I also thought it was interesting that uh, if you applied Mr. Knapp's argument to the issue of slavery, he would say that the suppression of the slave trade by Congress was unconstitutional as well. Right. Because there was a date on the Congress was not allowed to uh, do anything about slavery until after a certain date in the 19th century. And I don't remember what date that date was, but they, it was, was very early, actually. Was it 1800, 1804, something like that? It may have been 1808, or maybe, maybe it was 1800 or 1804, but it was this, it, it, that was in the Constitution along with one other thing that I think we mentioned either last week or the week before. And, and very few people realize this, I think that there is no you can you can pass any amendment under the sun except for one our constitution forbids any amendment that would deny states their equal representation in the senate and uh from time to time you will have for instance uh, john dingle who served for what 50 60 years in the congress wrote when he when he uh, retired finally wrote a uh, op-ed about how they should amend the constitution to change representation in the senate so it would be by population and not according to state and uh, you know not not equal between all the states and i remember thinking this guy was literally making policy in the united states for five six decades and doesn't understand the Constitution well enough to know that the article he just wrote, you can't do it. What they would have to do if you wanted to change that, uh, that provision is dissolve the United States of America. That was the deal getting in. So, it's, it, <clears throat> again, it's the sort of thing that people talk about the Constitution a lot, but there are people in positions that you would just think have to know the Constitution inside and out, like has been in Washington voting on laws and deciding whether those laws, you know, uh, muster, uh, you know, are, are good under the Constitution, which, of course, Dingell and every congressman takes an oath to, and yet not understanding the Constitution uh, well enough to know that, if, if that an amendment you are, are advocating and promoting is not even allowed under the Constitution, so it's it's uh, it it shows the level. I mean, this is the this is the fundamental law of our country, and the people running the country in Washington D.C. are fairly clueless about it, and not because it's a three thousand page bill of gobbledygook like uh, Obamacare was, or all these other omnibus omnibus bills are. This is a document that literally in in an hour you could read the entire document. Well, speaking of clueless, <laughs> the American federal government is in a really weird position regarding its finances, and uh, that was the subject of your Tuesday piece. The slow bullet. People don't think about slow bullets, but think about playing Russian roulette. You put the gun to your head and you pull the bullet, or you pull the bullet, you pull the trigger, and you think, oh, Nothing happened. I guess we pass it on. But if the bullet's slow enough, you could pull that trigger and you might not know it for quite some time before that bullet ripped into your skull. Um, that is the way our fiscal house is being run. Um, and 
and it's the sort of thing that, you know, for so many years, decades, my entire life, people have talked about the debt and the deficit and the fact that we're borrowing money and we're borrowing money from China. And we have the, the uh, collapse in, in 2008, the financial crisis, and we're still, to solve the crisis, we spend a lot of money that we really don't have. We borrow it, we print it, uh, and, and boom. Uh, we have more debt and more debt. And it's gotten to a point where we don't talk about it much anymore. Because who knows? You know, some people, the modern uh, monetary theory says, oh, the, the government can print whatever money it wants. What's the difference? The difference is that if you print up a lot of money and you don't have productivity and so on to, to uh, justify all that additional money, what tends to happen is you have inflation because there's all these dollars out there chasing products and that means the demand is high and the product supply hasn't gone up and so prices rise, inflation and you at some point get to where Venezuela is and where other Germany was in, uh, in the 20s and, and uh, before Hitler came to power. Um, and you don't know how soon this bad behavior is going to be reflected. But I assure you, at some point, it will be reflected. And, and here's another analogy. You might, you, you know, we all live in neighborhoods. I live in a neighborhood where, you know, I think people probably, the, the income levels are fairly different. I think there's some folks, uh, you know, we have one, one income earner in my family um, who are driving Hondas. There are people on the street that you've got two or three income earners in the, in the household. Um, and maybe some people are, are buying BMWs or uh, Mercedes. So, the, the folks who are buying the Mercedes are richer. The folks who are buying the Hondas maybe are not so rich. Um, and then maybe someone gets their, their house, they, they build a big addition to their house. Oh, they must really be doing good. Except realize that if tomorrow you decide you are going to just spend money like it's going out of style, you've got credit cards, you can go 50, 75, $100,000 into debt uh, on your credit cards. You can buy stuff on a layaway plan that you don't have to pay for it for a year. Get your, they're always advertising to get your roof fixed. Let's fix the roof. I don't have to pay for it for a year. So for the next year, you could just go into incredible debt. And what would your neighbors think? Well, they like the new car. Wow, that's nice. He must be doing well. They'll like the addition to the house. Oh, you've got your yard landscape. You've got everybody's going to be talking about how well you are doing. And if there's any, you know, oh, it could be, uh, surely it's not dead or something. He's doing fine. Look, he's got all this stuff. And then one day, like a balloon being popped someone's going to come and take their stuff back because you can't pay for it. And that's the way these things happen. You know that it's going the wrong direction. You know that it is going to 
fall and break, but you don't know when. And as long as you're spending money like crazy, you look like you're awfully wealthy. And so it's very possible that we won't notice that the United States of America is about to hit the wall, is about to fall off the cliff, because we got all this great stuff. We're, we go to the store, we can buy anything we want. Money's rolling. But if it's not built on solid monetary principles, if that wealth is borrowed wealth and not earned wealth, then it's not really wealth. And so this is, I think, we are, we're going to keep talking about the debt, but it has gone out of fashion. And it's going out of fashion because people are tired of it. I'm 60 years old. And I have heard that debt's going to get us for every, yeah, I, I don't remember when I was one or two hearing it much, but by three, I think I was hearing it a lot. And it, you're going to keep hearing that and people just ignore it. But it's real and it's out there. And especially living in a time in which we have spent trillions of dollars just sending money to people, sending money to people who in many cases needed it. But in some cases, and I will state my own case, did not need it. Oh, I like it. I've paid plenty of taxes. I felt like if you're sending some back, that's a, that's a good thing. But if I would have had to sign something to say, I want this money, I don't think I would have done it because I never want to be on the receiving end of government giveaways. That's not something I want to do. And I think there's a lot of people, thousands of people like me, who would have felt the same way. You make me sign something saying, hey, I want that $1,200 sent to me. I'm never signing it. And they wouldn't either. And so we, we have a government that at the drop of a hat can spend trillions in really kind of ways that don't seem to have any real accountability as we find out after the fact with some of these loans and so on. And the media is not asking, hey, where are you getting this money? In fact, after we've done it, now we're talking about doing it again. And people are still talking about, oh, we may need to shelter in place and shut down the economy longer until this disease goes away. Well, this disease may never go away. And so our fiscal insanity has gotten to such a, a position that we no longer even have any twinge of, of, wait a second, are we doing the right thing? Nobody even questions. And part of it, part of it maybe is the, the media just didn't think of the question, but I have a nagging suspicion that the media, for the most part, so loves government spending money that they would never think to ask, hey, where are you getting this money? They so love the idea of big government, big, active, in control government, our leaders in Washington, that they're never going to ask, hey, where'd you get these trillions of dollars you're throwing around? It reminds me, actually, of years ago, last year in baseball, the Washington Nationals won the World Series. They're world champions. Years ago, Washington didn't have a team. 
And every year and to this day, we hear about how there's not enough money for the schools. Kids aren't getting the school books they should have. There's not enough to go around. Everything's screwed up. We need more money. We need more money. But when they had a shot to pick up a major league baseball team, the government of Washington, D.C. picked up half a billion dollars, $500 million in loans to give to build the stadium and get this team in town. And it's just, you know, in other words, if they want to do it, there's there's nothing to stop them from spending money crazy. They complain all the time they don't have enough money, but then to do ridiculous things, they can come up with billions. Um, anyway, this, this is something that uh, it, it will either be corrected or, and I have no idea when, we are going to face a horrible, horrible day. And maybe it will be, if you're old like me, semi-old, maybe it'll be after we're dead and gone. Let's hope. But, geez, I hate to think that that's what we're leaving our kids. And uh, and I remember being a young person and thinking, I didn't blame my parents. I know they, I knew they were fighting against it. Um, but thinking, boy, this generation has left us with just, bills and debts and you know what a terrible generation fiscally and then as i got older and had kids of my own i thought oh my goodness what are they going to say about us we've been even worse and now i think we are raising a new generation who wouldn't even think about uh, if, if government wants to do it they just spend the money we just we print it up it grows on trees do a couple keystrokes on the computer and all of a sudden we'll have all this wealth and why wouldn't they think that way? That's the way they've seen the world work. And it's only this time lag that has not <laughs> given them the full picture. The fact that they're going to see that this big spending works until the day it falls apart. And that's going to be an ugly day. Yeah. Um Though in a, in a sense we are paying for it now too. I mean, because in a sense, you know, debt does is always money coming from somewhere going to somewhere. I mean, there is wealth moving around, and one of the reasons I think for the inequality that people do see in our society, one of the reasons for the inequality is because it's going, it's being financed. The financial system is the biggest industry. So I mean, that is that's that's where the money is. That's where you have all these people getting really rich on Wall Street. Uh, it's not because finances are so lucrative it's partly because the government is involved and also as you've mentioned many times we have the problem of the counties surrounding washington dc are some of the richest counties in the country with people having the highest paying jobs and those aren't jobs coming out of the free market right no that's right it's uh this is uh you know it it's this is so tough uh, because, as we pointed out, there is, once you start spending tomorrow's income today, it's hard to stop. Once you start pumping this thing up, the impetus, the, the uh, inertia is to keep pumping it up. That you, It's almost like you can't afford to stop. In the same way that if, if you're borrowing money to pay your bills 
today. In a few weeks, even if you brought in money from your work, if you kept spending at that rate, now you got to pay the bills from the money you borrowed plus your bills. And you just, you tend to just be on this, uh, you know, on this uh, track where you're running as fast as you can and you're borrowing and you're spending. And uh, it's tough to get to where you have a, a better situation. It's, it's um, you know, that the, to me, and I'm, I'm not, you know, Tim, you have, have some real economic training and, and knowledge. I'm, uh, I, I don't even claim to be a amateur economist. Um, but it, it strikes me, I, I, I look at economics and I think that we need something behind the money. And I always think it doesn't have to be gold. It could be, I've, I've read things where people talk about, you could have a number of commodities, you could do it different ways, but there has to be something behind it. And it seems to me that when we were on a gold standard, that there was at least some discipline in that if you printed up a bunch of money, someone could come at some point and say, I want this amount of gold, and you were limited in some way. Now, maybe that's a, a, uh, a very naive view. I wouldn't, I, I probably is, um, because it's not something I've, I've deeply studied. But right now, it just seems like we have no controls whatsoever. And, um, and that's, you know, the, these folks, these folks need all the accountability we can muster. And it seems like there's none. So what do you think about that? Uh, my explanation there or whatever of uh, why I, I wouldn't mind the gold standard, although it could be something else. The gold standard or any metal standard uh, has some real advantages for us, but not for the not for the state. Uh, the vast welfare state and military industrial complex state, that likes an inflationary system, that likes the system we have because they can manipulate it in funny ways and they can get the Cantillon effects. But we want to have stable money and we want to have progress that's based on actual productivity. That's what we want, you, you and me. And so, so we like to have things with, with like you say, built-in accountability. And that's kind of what uh, a gold standard would do. I'm actually for open currencies, uh, free market currencies, competing currencies. And one of them, and, and I think that the various standards should compete with each other. So you would make your contracts in gold or silver or platinum or Bitcoin. So Wednesday, we talked about a little flu, Bolsonaro's little flu. We're talking about the president of Brazil who is compared oftentimes to Donald Trump. He's kind of a populist and, uh, and uh, tough talking. And uh, well, I'll, I'll read uh, what he said recently. Quote, I know that nobody can recover from dying, but the economy not working leads to other causes of death and suicide. We have suffered very harsh criticism in this regard, but today it shows that we are right. The fact that I am infected shows that I am a human being like any other. Now, as I, as I said in the commentary, uh, you know, maybe, maybe he wasn't quite as, uh, as articulate as he could have been there, but he is right. You can't recover from dying. And that's why, uh, you know, people are going to do anything they can not to 
get the coronavirus, which could kill them. Um, and it's, it's why we have to take it seriously. But he also makes the point that there are other bad things that can happen. There are other ways to die. And we are beginning to see heightened levels of suicide from people being away from each other and, and uh, almost in solitary confinement uh, in their homes, so to speak. And, uh, and we're seeing other problems, people not getting medical care, which we've talked about uh, numerous times, because they're being pushed off, we have to deal with COVID. So maybe your, you know, your heart bypass surgery isn't, doesn't have to happen today, you'll be all right. But if it doesn't happen for four or five weeks, oh, maybe we were wrong. And maybe that heart attack comes. And maybe you're a little slow to go to the hospital because you've been told, don't go to the hospital. And more and more people are dying of heart attacks uh, than would be normal. Uh, now, not, not exhaustive studies. What we're saying is, is what we are seeing and reading about the initial results. Uh, so I'm, I'm not claiming I have some perfect knowledge of everything that's happening, but clearly there are repercussions from shutting down the economy. And we haven't even gotten to the fact that it could have severe problems for people not in the United States as we don't produce as much food, we don't have as much wealth because we take a hit and so we don't have the largesse to give to others who might be in, in uh, drought-stricken Ethiopia or, or wherever. There are potentially millions of people who could die because we shut down the economy and because it looks like a lot of people want to keep shutting down the economy. And I thought it's interesting, too, that, you know, he uses a, kind of the populist, see, I'm a man of the people. <laughs> I got COVID-19. Um, but it's it's uh, and, and he's taking uh, hydro uh, hydro uh, hydroxychloroquine. And uh, and so we'll see, you know, there's been so much debate about whether that works or, or doesn't work. Um, but really beyond just this uh, this one story that here's here's someone I think it, who was it? Uh, I think it was uh, president of France, Macron's uh, wife, I think, has uh, COVID-19. So there's been a you know, there's been a lot of people in high places who have who have gotten it. Uh, that's the way viruses aren't very. Uh, very good about only hitting some people and not others. But in the course of CNN talking about this, what they did, and they're not alone, the entire media seems to be this way, they talk about more and more cases coming out. Oh, there's all these new cases, but they're not coming to grips with the fact that what we're finding out is the lethality rate. The, percentage of people who get COVID-19 and then die is very, very small. Uh, as CNN reported, it's 4% right now from what we can gather. But of course, that 4% is very, very high, most people think, because we don't know everyone who has COVID. Um, we only know, you know those people we tested and, and have found out they have it. The belief is that literally 12 to 16 times more people have had COVID than have been tested and determined to have COVID. And uh, that 
means that 4%, well, is one twelfth as much. Uh, that's one sixteenth as much. That's uh, less than 1%. So again, it doesn't mean you want to go willy nilly because you know what? If 100 people get it and the lethality rate is 1%, somebody's going to die. And that's not good. And there's no recovery. But it does mean we have to look at what are the costs and benefits? And, you know, I'll say, and I didn't say it in this particular script, uh, because really the point of this script was that we're not, we, we get from the media a lot of hype. If, if we find out that few, a lower percentage of people are dying from COVID-19, eh, that might get a tiny mention somewhere. But if we find there are more cases, even at the same time that we're finding that fewer people are dying, we're going to be hyped about the more cases. And I think we're, we have no reason to believe this is going to change. And so I think the rest of us uh, have, to, have to hear the media and take it with a, uh, with a grain of, of something. And, uh, and hear... Um, well, I, I, I'll just say that, that, you know, I think CNN, it, so many people, oh, I wouldn't believe CNN because they've been kind of one of the worst uh, uh, fake news or just bad journalism uh, is probably the better way to say it. But they're not alone. The entire media uh, has hyped uh, aspects of this that, you know, I think maybe sell papers or sell advertising on TV uh, for their programs, but don't seem to be telling us the truth and the full truth. And uh, and we've seen things where, you know, now uh, we've got all kinds of harsh things to say about anyone who doesn't wear a mask after the media <clears throat> took the what the CDC was saying early on and told us all for weeks how stupid it was for us to wear a mask, how it was going to be counterproductive. So, uh, again... Uh, the media has not been uh, uh, a good player in this uh, in this little game of uh, pandemic, and uh, and that's a shame. I think that uh, we should remind ourselves that, as you suggested but didn't make very explicit, is that the death rate is going down and has been going down for some time. The death rate to coronavirus in the United States and elsewhere has been going down, and that really is important to remember. And then on May twelfth. Uh, you uh, wrote about the interesting aspect of the HIT. Remember the remember HIT? What is it? Yeah. Uh, Herd uh... immunity threshold, and that appears yeah. to be. And I'm getting more articles every day about this. Is that it appears to be less than uh, around 10, 10 to twenty percent uh, is where the, is where the threshold is, not the 60 or 70 percent that was thought to be at some time, you know, early in the pandemic. They were afraid that the herd immunity threshold was 60 or 70 percent, which would have meant a lot of people dying uh, before the, you know, before the turnaround of the disease. It looks like the turnaround of the disease has already occurred. And this is very soon to be not much of an issue, though what had happened, they, they told us we'd also have it coming back in the fall. And if we have reached each, uh, the threshold, then I think we won't have that. Do you understand that? That seems to be the case as far as I can tell. As, as far as I understand it, once we hit that threshold and have the, you know, that they consider herd immunity threshold, 
then it then it begins to diminish because it hits too many people who you know aren't susceptible to it anymore. Although there's still some question because it's brand new as to whether you have that immunity and how strong your immunity to it is uh, after you get it. For instance, if you just had COVID-19 and you come in contact with it today, would you, and you, you had it four weeks ago, are you immune to it? Well, uh, I think that most people, medical people right now would say, yes, you probably are at that point. But there's a question as to whether six months later, you would still have that level or a significant level of immunity or a year later. So with everything, this is so new that it's difficult to say things categorically. Another idea was that a lot of times there's a there's a break in the summer uh, that viruses don't do as well in, in the heat. And for whatever reason, you know, uh, they, they end up kind of going away and then coming back in the fall. But this doesn't seem to have gone away. So, uh, again, a, a lot of this is, is surmising what's going to happen. And this thing is, is, has been surprising, in part. Uh, to me, the, the, uh, the, the one thing I keep coming back to is, and, and we're having debates now about opening schools or not opening schools. And, of course, if you're, if you're thinking about the teachers, you're worried that all these kids come in and some of them could be carrying stuff. If you're thinking more about the kids, they're the least susceptible. Uh, and they, it also, I read something the other day that they believe that they are not spreaders in the way that adults are. Uh, and I didn't really get any detail as to why they believe that, but that's what one article said. Anyway, you look at that and you, you, know, you can argue one way or the other. There are diseases out there. There are viruses out there. This isn't the only one. You can die from them. To me, the solution, which is not some big solution, cure, everything's wonderful, but the result, the, the response that we ought to have is, how dangerous is this to me personally? If I am compromised in my immunity uh, system, uh, immune system, if, if I have lung problems, um, and there could be all kinds of, of medical issues that I might have, or maybe I don't have a lot of medical issues, but I'm 85 years old, um, then I think I'm going to want to take some actions to protect myself. For the vast majority of people who have very, very, very little risk, even if they get the virus, very little risk that they're going to die. They may feel bad for a while. And there's some question as to whether there aren't some other damages they could have to their body. But to me, the way to deal with the schools, the way to deal with businesses is to stop this decree from on high where some medical expert or some politician uh, decides they know it all and they're gonna tell everybody what to do. Allow there to be freedom. Allow schools that can open up, that see a way to open up, to open up. Allow teachers maybe very liberal policies that if they feel like they're compromised, maybe you give them a leave of absence. You bend over backwards to the degree you can to be sensitive to people not wanting to take that risk. 
but you you use freedom and you use everybody's individual desire to have a life and to stay alive for them to decide what risks they're willing to take. Um, and that doesn't mean that, you know, somebody who doesn't want to wear a mask gets to go into your store where you've said you have to wear a mask and their freedom means they get to do whatever they want. It's your store. Uh, if, if the rules are you have to wear a mask in public places, well, that's, the public decides that. So uh, I'm not talking about some crazy freedom where you can do whatever you want in, on somebody else's property or with somebody else's stuff. I'm talking about the sort of freedom where you make the decision, you decide what risk you're willing to take, and then you live by that decision, and you take whatever costs come with that. And uh, I think I think we would have opened the economy sooner, smarter, and safer had had there never been a shutdown order, but had government officials gotten on our TVs, on our radio, in our newspaper, and said, "Look, this is what we know. This is what we think is the best approach. We are urging businesses." to shut down at this point or to consider this or to, you know, whatever, but ultimately leave that decision with them. They're, they don't want, they don't want to be sued later. They're going to talk to their attorney maybe or insurance agent. Uh, they're going to talk to other businesses. They're going to talk to their employees. Look, this is tough stuff, but the idea that we would jettison the free and dynamic body politic that we are for a top-down, uh, the government just tells us what to do, is insane. And, uh, and it's, it's, uh, it doesn't work. It creates this constant fight. And, you know, the, the only thing worse than a pandemic is a pandemic while you're constantly fighting with everybody. Um, so uh, less fights more people making decisions with their own lives and their own businesses and taking responsibility. Now, normally I would just say, let's go right on to Thursday's piece on the WHO, uh, that is the World Health Organization, which is sort of about the coronavirus, but you just said something that is the very opposite of the philosophy expressed by uh, Kashama Sawant that you mentioned on Friday. So which do you want to go for next? <laughs> um, well, I can't wait to get to <laughs> Kasama Sawan, uh, but I think that probably says let's deal with the who very quickly because I think it can be dealt with uh, more quickly, and then we'll get to uh, what our favorite socialists are warning us about around the country. So let's first talk about uh, Thursday's script, which was "Who Don't You Love," and it's about the fact that the United States, by Donald Trump sending a letter to the United Nations and to Congress, the United States has given the one year's notice that is required to withdraw from the World Health Organization. It was greeted, for the most part, from most of the media, Democrats, even a few Republicans, as, oh, this is a terrible thing. Oh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. People are going to die. And, and of course, uh, we're still in for another year. We're still paying the bills for the most part. We're the largest contributor financially 
to who? World Health Organization. We're 15% of their budget. And of course, by announcing that we're, we're withdrawing and won't be sending them money, all of a sudden now they're worried about whether they are even financially viable. And uh, it's funny, uh, uh, Robert Menendez, this uh, senator in New Jersey, Democratic senator and the head Democrat in the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Commission, Committee, said that uh, it leaves Americans sick and America alone. And I asked, feeling lonely? Because I'm not feeling alone at all. We gave over $400 million to the World Health Organization last fiscal year. I have a feeling that we can take that money and help World Health a lot more than we could through who. It also is, sends a message that I suspect they have never heard and never thought they would ever hear. That message being this, when the United States who's footing the bill has complaints about the way you have helped China hide what is a deadly disease and you have facilitated, you're supposed to be helping World Health, instead you have helped China facilitate a pandemic across the globe, it is time for there to be some repercussions. And that's what there never is. There's a lot of bitching and moaning. There's a lot of politicians talking tough that they're going to, boy, just like they're going to get a handle on the VA and they're going to, heads will roll. And then, of course, nobody's heads roll. And 10 years later, the VA still isn't doing what it should with veterans. And 20 years later, it's still not. Well, the World Health Organization is the same way. And virtually the entire UN, every agency, lock, stock, and barrel, it is unaccountable. And it's unaccountable because it works in this huge global bureaucracy and because countries like the United States who are footing the bill are a bunch of wimps and never say, hey, wait a second, if I'm not going to get what I'm paying for, I'm going to stop paying. And I can imagine any president in my lifetime reading the riot act to the World Health Organization. But Donald Trump, love him or hate him, Donald Trump is the only president that I can imagine having the stones to say, I'm out. We're not paying. We're withdrawing. The World Health Organization will go down the tubes. We have had enough. And boy, you know that that message is being heard loud and clear. Nobody understands somebody's dissatisfaction better than when they withdraw their cash from the uh, situation. And that is what we have done. My hat is off to Donald Trump. It's like, what a breath of fresh air. And, you know, I don't always like the way he says stuff. There's certain issues I think he's been terrible on. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a cheerleader for Mr. Trump, but this 
sort of behavior is something that I wanted to call out and lift up and illuminate because we need this sort of person in public office, someone who has some business sense, someone who's not just willing to kick the can forever down the road. We talked weeks ago about what uh, Mr. Trump did in changing this postal subsidy where American businesses are going out of business because they're having to pay more to ship stuff within the United States than their Chinese competitors are paying shipping it all the way from Beijing or Shanghai to the U.S. because of some stupid treaty that American president after American president had moaned and bitched about, oh, this is terrible, but not done anything about it. So this, uh, not much more to say than this is Donald Trump at his best. And whoever is the next president after Trump gets a second term or after Trump's defeated, learn from this. And, um, and those of us out there in, in uh, podcast land, for goodness sake, let's make sure that politicians know this is what we want them to do, to take a stand, to not be pushed around by editorial boards who are always going to like it better if you make some statement but keep sending your cash to the unaccountable UN agency or, or U.S. government agency. Accountability. Watch the money and stop paying for what you don't want. And that does actually uh, slide right into Friday's piece, A Modest Anti-Capitalism, because you were just talking about accountability, and if you withdraw money, people actually start paying attention. That's what capitalism is based on. It's based on the fact that people don't, aren't required to buy your stuff. And so all these businesses, they're just not required to... They have to listen sometimes to their consumers, especially the ones that uh, aren't subsidized. So... Uh, <laughs> So, and and the, a rising bunch of social, a bunch of socialists around the United States, like a Kashami Sawant, want to replace capitalism with a system in which it's really hard to give feedback in the form of withdrawing support. You require their support. They believe that a economic system that functions much more politically, that is controlled much more by people who are officials in government or who hopefully they'll still be elections when when the socialists first take over we'll see uh but in other words they're looking for either elected officials or unelected officials to have much more power in deciding how the economy works so they can make it fair for everybody so they can make it wonderful but i submit to you ask yourself when I go vote, do I get what I want out of that relationship? And then ask yourselves, when I go to the store, to the restaurant, to the clothing store, and I interact, do I get more of what I want out of that relationship? Does my vote have more power than my dollars, or do my dollars have more power than my vote? And I think any reasonable person 
especially if you've been voting and losing as long as I have, uh, you can go get what you want with money. People will say, oh, well, yeah, I'll, I'll get you that if that's what you'll pay. Uh, when you're, when I go to, uh, I'm, a, I'm kind of a little bit of a uh, Starbucks addict, uh, flat white is a wonderful drink. So you just remember that. I get what I want. It's expensive. It's more expensive than going to 7-Eleven, but it's what I want. And if I want to go to 7-Eleven instead, nobody stops me. I can get the cheaper coffee there. The marketplace in America, in fact, some of the complaints that you've heard Bernie Sanders and other people sometimes make them on the left that we've got too many choices. You know, it just confuses us to have all these choices. Well, we're certainly not confused when it comes to politics because we don't have, have any real choices. We've got a choice this November between sleepy Joe Biden, who I was told a recent poll showed 50% of the people did not believe he had the fitness to be president. And I was also told that of that 50% that believed that, about half of them were still going to vote for him because they so hate Trump. Um, and and so you, you've got this election in which I think literally more than half the people don't believe either candidate should be in the office. Uh, that's a lot different than the sort of choices we have in the marketplace. So there's that uh, kind of in a practical standpoint. But the reason that uh, I wrote about Mrs. Sawant and also Ilhan Omar, who is the Somali-born congresswoman from Minneapolis area, she came and gave a speech this uh, at a press conference this week. And I didn't thank her. I will thank her because she, as well as the city councilwoman, Kishana Sawant, both of whom declare themselves to be socialists, both of them came out this week. And as they would say it, they spoke truth to power. They spoke truth. And it wasn't just the words that I think are well worth reading and remembering, but it was the tone that comes through in, in those words. And uh, let me just, I'll just uh, uh, read what, what uh, uh, the councilwoman had to say. Uh, and, and Omar basically was saying that she's going to fight to overthrow all these systems of oppression. And, uh, and I'm going to do, do this before I go to what the councilwoman said. And the whole point of it was that we need a big revolution to overturn the whole way our society works. And I think we need lots of changes, but I don't think we need a revolution to overthrow the way our society works. Certainly don't think we need a revolution to institute the socialism that has failed everywhere it's ever been tried uh, and to trade that for you know, uh, instead of the the system that has led to uh, creation of a lot of wealth and a lot of choice. Um, but I thank her for at least coming out and using the sort of rhetoric that makes it clear where she's headed, where she stands. And she stands to say, we have to completely change America. And I think it helps people decide, look, if you think that America is just fundamentally wrong in virtually every way, and we need to go to more of a system like they have in, and, and not in Sweden, not in Denmark, but in Venezuela, in other places where they control 
the economy in ways that we don't and in ways that the social democracies in Western Europe and Northern Europe don't control uh, their economies. But it's also the, it's the tone that, that comes through. And this is what, uh, uh, what uh, Kashana, uh, Kashama Sawant said. She's the city councilwoman in Seattle. Quote, I have a message for Jeff Bezos and his class, little class warfare here. If you attempt again to overturn the Amazon tax, that was her proposal, the Amazon tax, uh, which looked like it was going to be happened. And then they decided they didn't want all the businesses to leave Seattle and, and it was stopped. If you attempt again to overturn the Amazon tax, working people will go all out in the thousands to beat you. Now, I don't think he's running for office, but OK, um, I guess beat him and, and this time they'll pass it. And we will not stop there, he says. And then she goes on. You see, we are fighting for far more than this tax. We are preparing the ground for a different kind of society. And if you, Jeff Bezos, want to drive that process forward by lashing out against us in our modest demands, then so be it. Because we are coming for you and your rotten system. We are coming to dismantle this deeply oppressive, racist, sexist, violent, utterly bankrupt system of capitalism. This police state, we cannot and will not stop until we overthrow it and replace it in a, and replace it with a world based instead on solidarity, genuine democracy and equality, a socialist world. And then she said, thank you. And I thanked her for making it so clear. They want to overthrow the entire system that we have all the good, as well as occasionally they, they bump into something that's bad, because we do have some bad things. But it's also the tone, the tone that they're coming after Bezos, and how dare he speak out and act like he's allowed to be in this process? How dare anyone oppose us? We're coming for you. This is the rhetoric of revolutionaries. But it's not just the rhetoric of revolutionaries. It's the rhetoric of revolutionaries that I don't want to hang out with if they ever win. If you look at history, I think that the American Revolution was justified. I think the French Revolution was justified. But boy, I'd sure rather have the American Revolution than the French Revolution. Because the aftermath of the French Revolution was a lot of people losing their heads. And when people talk about politics in a society in which we have as many democratic processes to agitate for change, to make change, when they talk about overthrow and when they talk about coming for people because they dared to oppose them on a political issue 
that is a whole different sort of politics. It's the sort of politics that has never taken root in this country. I can remember election after election, and sometimes as, as Democrats, we'd be more apt to kind of, hey, we're going we're gonna to use the class warfare. It's the rich, you know, the 1%. That has gotten, but, but people would always say, that's never worked in America. America isn't the sort of place where they buy into the class warfare stuff. It's not the sort of place where the poor hate the rich. They might want to be rich, but it's where the poor might say, geez, how'd they get that? Maybe I can do that same thing. And, uh, and so I, I hear this, I hear what they're saying, and it's ugly, but I hear how they're saying and it's even uglier and scarier. Uh, and this is why, um, you know, I think, we, I think we have to call this out. I think we have to use what they are saying. And, and we need to find out, if you're on the left, is this what you're for? Because, and, and the media is not going to do this for us. They're going to hide this. They're not going to ask Joe Biden hey, do you agree with what the city councilwoman said? Do you agree with Omar that we need to overthrow this system? Um, but someone needs to, and they need to ask anyone who is running uh, as a Democrat, do you agree with the idea that we need to overthrow this system, that this system is completely rotten and needs to be completely dismantled? And of course, uh, Ms. Sawant uh, mentioned this police state, but my goodness, as much as I am critical of the criminal justice system and the way it's working in the United States, which is not well, the idea that uh, of her calling this a police state, when you look at the history of socialism, and of folks who want government to have the sort of power she wants it to have. And that is a police state. That was Paul Jacob. And this is the end of the podcast. You can find Common Sense with Paul Jacob on Facebook and at thisiscommonsense.org. Five days a week. My name is Timothy Verkula. You can find me at locofoco.net and at workman.com. That's workman with an I, not an O. And I thank you for tuning in.